Welcome to Truth Matters Church, a ministry dedicated to the expository study of God's Word. Today we continue our look at the letter to the church in Laodicea, and we'll look at Jesus' stern warning to a church that was lukewarm. We'll use scripture to unpack the true meaning of this phrase, and we'll find it is applicable, cutting, and convicting even for Christians and churches today. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex. For the title of our lesson today, it is Because You Are Lukewarm. I'm sure for many of us, we're familiar with some of this terminology used by our Lord. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. But as our Lord Jesus surveyed these seven churches and drew his attention to this seventh church in Laodicea, when he assessed them, And he's saying these words, it is because they are lukewarm. And what we're going to find is this is not a good description for anyone. We're going to find if that lukewarm doesn't become hot or cold, that he will spit them out of his mouth. And we'll see what that means. So this particular letter is full of warning. It is the only letter, quite frankly, of the seven that pretty much didn't have anything positive to say. Now, there were other churches that didn't have it all together, but this particular letter kind of takes the cake on that, and we will see why that is. That said, let's read this letter to this church in Laodicea. We'll read it in its entirety, and we'll pick it up from the top at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those are the very words of our risen Lord. We're going to pick this up in verse 15. And let's see once again what our Lord said there. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. When he says, I know, I oida, I oida your deeds. This knowledge is acquired knowledge. He assessed them, as I mentioned earlier. And he says, I know. I am fully aware of your deeds. And that is that you are neither cold nor hot. And what we learned in our introductory study, when he says that you are neither cold nor hot, 
These were direct references to the neighboring towns. Up north, there was Hierapolis. And what they were known for was their hot springs. And when he says that you were neither cold, east of Laodicea was the Colossi Cold Springs. Back in that ancient town, they had an aqueduct or whatever, in which the waters would make its way from the hot springs of Hierapolis or from the cold springs of Colossae. And what was characteristic of that, by the time that it made its way to Laodicea, that water oftentimes accumulated minerals. You know, tasted and even smelt bad. So it wouldn't be uncharacteristic if by the time the Laodiceans got that water, and let's say took a sip, they spit it out because of its taste. So when the Laodiceans get this letter, they know by firsthand experience what our Lord is saying. But I do want to look at this phrase, because you are neither cold nor hot. There are some teachings out there that somehow equate hot is good and cold is bad. That cold is somewhat negative. What we're going to find is that is not the case at all. Because Jesus said, I wish that they were either cold or hot. I want to say this. If there's any teaching out there that says Jesus wishes someone to either be all good or all bad, my question to you is, or to that, where in Scripture does our loving God ever wish ill will to anyone? Created in His image, and has something negative to say or wish for them. If anything, when we look to Scripture, it's the opposite. We're familiar with this. Peter wrote, The Lord, Jesus, is not slow about keeping His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So if there's any teaching that says, well, our Lord really wished that you were either all in or all out, all good or all evil, can't be supported in Scripture. If He wishes you to be hot, or if He wishes you to be cold, He wishes for your best and for your good and for His glory. So what is being spoken of here then when He says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold? And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's actually pretty self-explanatory as we will see. But I want to look briefly at Scripture. So cold is sucras. And it speaks of cold temperature. Mike, we just talked about Wyoming. It can get negative 17. You know what you're going to see? The sucus cold. You're going, to, you're going to see smoke. It manifests itself because of the temperature. And the only mention of sucrose elsewhere in the New Testament is in Matthew. And we're familiar with this account. Our Lord says there in Matthew 10.42, And whoever in the name of the disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold sucrose, water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. The idea here is if someone were one of his disciples and gave one of his little ones cold, refreshing water. Imagine one of his little ones famished of thirst and you were to give him a cup of cold, refreshing water. So even in that example, cold, refreshing. Not negative 17, refreshing. But in this case, refreshing to drink. So the same goes for hot. Hot is zestos. And just like cold speaks of cold temperature, zestos 
is the opposite. It speaks of hot temperature, and oftentimes it's boiling temperature. As far as zestos go, there's no other usage in the New Testament, only here. But there are some teachings out there, kind of going to that contrast, saying hot speaks of zeal and fervor. I wish you were hot. I wish you were zealous. I wish you were full of fervor. I'm just going to hit pause on that for now. But from what we've learned about cold, sucrose is a good thing. So whatever our Lord is communicating by hot, it's a contrast of a good thing too. He's giving us two. They're quite different, but they're good. And if we can use Matthew 10 as an example, for comparative purposes only, I think we can see this contrast and parallel. Because remember, whatever our Lord is saying, He's saying it in a positive light. To be cold is positive, and to be hot is positive. So we looked at Matthew 10 when cold was used in a positive light, right? And whoever in the name of disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So we covered there. The idea here is cold, refreshing water. So by comparative contrast, if you're to look at hot in a positive light, this is just for comparative purposes only. But if our Lord even said, and whoever in the name of the disciple gives one to these little ones even a cup of hot cocoa to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And the idea here is a hot drink, and let's say on a cold winter day. So cold has its properties and benefits. I don't think you want to drink cold, refreshing water when it's negative 17. You might want some Zestos chocolate. But if it's 117, then you don't want hot cocoa, or at least you shouldn't. You would want cold, sucrose, refreshing water. But they're both in a positive light. So here's a case in point. Cold properties is a good thing, and hot properties is an equally good thing. And our Lord desired for the Laodiceans to be either cold or hot, but in their case, they were neither. Let's continue on on the next verse. Here's why. So because you're lukewarm, the title of this message, and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, because you are. That's in the present tense. Lukewarm, as I even mentioned, not only in our introductory study, but mentioned again today, by the time the waters from those two sources reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So this verse 16 is really hitting home and relevant to their situation. He says, because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I've heard some crazy teachings on, I will spit you out of my mouth. That Jesus somewhat sampled them and spit them out. Or that somehow, even to support a view that you can lose your salvation, they're saying, look, he was in their mouth, they were saved, and he spit them out, they're unsaved. Something along those lines. Well, just the rendering and the construction of this verse, I will spit you out, is in the future tense. Prophecy. So by the time this letter is written, and our Lord uttered these words, I will spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. That's sometime in the future. He says, I will. Jesus, our Lord Jesus himself, will spit them out. Spit is imio. It also means vomit. My mouth, from the very mouth and lips of our Lord. So these Laodiceans who are lukewarm from our Lord's own lips, our Lord will vomit them out. This is a prophetic warning. This is a warning of impending judgment. 
The Laodiceans who received this letter hear the words of our Lord and remain in that lukewarm state that he's assessed, there's impending judgment for them. And that's why he's writing this very direct letter to them. Let me ask us a question. When will this impending judgment occur? Mm -hmm. Judgment Day, which is in the future, specifically at the end of the age, when they are raised and judged. So those Laodiceans who were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and they don't heed the warning of this letter, when they are raised and judged, our Lord will vomit them out with his own mouth. And when I talk about mouth, he says, my mouth, the very mouth of our Lord. In Revelation 1.16, we learned that out of Jesus' mouth came a two-edged sword. In the letter to Pergamum in chapter 2, our Lord described himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And he warned them to repent or else he is coming quickly and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you take these into consideration, when we come to this letter in Laodicea, when Jesus found them to be neither cold nor hot but lukewarm, he warns that he will spit, vomit them out, and will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Come judgment. He is warning that he will judge them to damnation. This is to a church and professed believers in it. He tells us why this warning is so severe. He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. He says, because you say, who's you? The Laodiceans. You say, see a quote here? He's quoting them. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And we've learned this in our introduction. And there were some inferences of this in Paul's letter to Colossae, to the Colossian believers. Laodicea was characterized as a city or town with riches and treasures. Apparently, these first century Laodiceans benefited from their economic wealth. And he's quoting them saying, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. These came out of the Laodiceans. It's as if our Lord was a fly on the wall listening to their conversations. And he heard them say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's why they are in grave danger. Because as we continue on, he's going to tell them of their true condition. I want to say this in this verse, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Could there be some prophetic implications even beyond them to the end of the age? I suppose it could. But at least for where we're at, I'm not going to touch on it more unless... The scripture takes us there, and it becomes at least a little more apparent on what that is. So I'm not going to say, oh, this is just limited. This, this, this phrase and him quoting them cannot have some prophetic implications concerning the state and condition of the church towards the end of the age. That's plausible. I'm not going to discount that, but for now I'm going to at least stay within the context. I don't know if you guys noticed this. You notice I've been just staying within... The context of these letters, yeah, I'll go out, but for the most part, come grounded. And aren't we finding that a lot of descriptions in these churches kind of fit, even the churches that we may <laughs> be accustomed to and familiar with now? So is it possible that this too can kind of be a blueprint of the condition of the church and its demise and its history, and that the churches that continue to remain, 
there were only two of these seven churches that received only commendation. The other five, which is the majority of the rest, there was some rebuke and condemnation. And when we get to even this seventh letter, it's only condemnation. So is it possible that even, even though we're staying within context, it can give us some insight and wisdom into the conditions of the churches, even as they exist today? This is kind of a good barometer or gauge to see, okay, this church kind of falls within which of these seven? What's more characteristic of it? There's definitely could be that. But I'm not trying to over-spiritualize things, but we also know that the Word of God can give us that insight and wisdom in even looking at the differences between the different churches and denominations. Let's continue on in verse 17. And he says, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He says, You do not know the same word oida. They aren't aware. They haven't acquired this knowledge of their condition. They didn't know their true state. And what that true state is, how did, when Jesus looked at these seven lampstands, representative of the seven churches, and it came to Laodicea, and he saw their deeds, that they're neither cold nor hot, but they are lukewarm. They didn't know how their Lord really saw them. He says, and you do not know that you are present tense. By 95, 96 AD, when this book was written, and this letter made its way to Laodicea, they were already wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wretched is taliai porus. It means distressed or miserable. And to get an idea of wretched, Paul uses this to describe his unredeemed condition. And we know this. He goes, wretched, taliai poros, man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. To describe his unredeemed condition, it's wretched. It's a miserable state. And that applies not only to Paul, but for all mankind. If this physical present state that is our current condition is the only condition that we'll ever have or experience, then we are wretched. We are in a miserable state. There's no hope. Miserable is elienos. Miserable means most pitiful and, and to be pitied. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 concerning Christ's resurrection, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Elienos. If as Christians holding on to the Christian faith, holding on to biblical Christianity, to the gospel, if believing in Christ in this life is all we have and there's no hope of the resurrection, then we would be miserable more than anyone else. Most pitiful. We should be pitied. The world will really have something to say about Christians if we're living for not only just this life, but for the life to come only there for not to be a life to come, then we are to be pitied because we've wasted the opportunity that we have while we were here, pursuing whatever the world has to offer. Poor, I don't even know how to say that, and blind, toughless, and naked, gumos. And this is descriptive. Imagine a poor beggar, destitute, even blind, and poorly clothed. Now, I've 
You've, you've probably, some of you have experienced this, especially in San Francisco, but sometimes you'll see some homeless poorly clothed and even exposing themselves. That's kind of consistent with how our Lord is evaluating their true condition. It's similar to that. And just like Sardis had the appearance of being alive, but Jesus found most were dead. So to the Laodiceans, they had the appearance of being rich and wealthy, but were spiritually poor, destitute, blind, and poorly clothed. And because of their true condition, Jesus gives them advice. Would you like some advice from our Lord as well? What's interesting is a lot of us would like advice and counsel of men. And there's nothing wrong, especially if the Spirit of God is in that person and has given them wisdom. But let's hear the advice, the counsel that our Lord gave to the Laodiceans. He says, I advise you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now for this verse, there's a lot going on and we're going to break this up. When our Lord says, I advise you, he's giving counsel on how to become truly rich and truly wealthy. And that is to buy from me gold refined by fire. So we'll look at that. To clothe themselves with white garments. Look at that. To conceal the shame of your nakedness. We'll look at that. And also to buy from Jesus eye salve to anoint your eyes. Let's look at buy from me gold refined by fire. Uh, I don't know if you guys thought that. Did you know Jesus is an entrepreneur? And in the gold business, he's saying, buy from me gold, refined by fire. I'm kidding. He's not actually in the business of selling actual gold, obviously. In context, the Laodiceans, they were materially wealthy, and they were claiming to be rich. But after examining them, Jesus found them not recognizing their true spiritual state of being poor, pitiful, miserable, blind, and naked. And it's because of this, that our Lord is giving them counsel from heaven. And that counsel is to buy from him gold refined by fire. And I want to touch briefly on this phrase, gold refined by fire. Now the process to refine gold in ancient times was through fire or flames. In fact, not only was this done in ancient times, but this, for the most part, is one of the most common methods to refine gold even today. In ancient times, that craftsman would sit next to that hot fire and with molten gold in the crucible, and they would stir it and skim it. And its goal was to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal and making it easier for removal. And that those flames or hot fire, it would reach temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius. And it would make it a hazardous and dangerous job even for the gold refiner. But the goal is, when you refine gold through fire, you want the impurities to be removed. And you can't remove the impurities from gold apart from that intense heat. And just some basic information here. You know, how many of us have heard of 24 karat gold? There's 18 karat gold. There's 14, 10 karat, etc. Well, the more impurities that were removed from gold, the greater the value so 24 karat gold is the closest to 100% of pure gold with very few impurities. And when you get lower, 
let's say, to 18 karat gold, it's 75% about pure gold. And when you get to 14 karat, it's about 58%, 10 karat, 42%. But when gold is refined, the more impurities you remove, then the closest you get to 24 karat, gold refined by fire. The goal or objective in, ref- in refining the gold by fire is to take out its impurities. The goal is really to get as much pure gold as possible. Get it as close to 24 karat as possible. The closer you are, greater it's worth because you have the more pure metal of gold. With that in mind, it'll help us understand what Jesus means by this statement. And I want to cross-reference Peter. What is our Lord selling here? It's not actual physical gold, but Peter will help us understand what this offer is really all about. So let's read First Peter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. And this is concerning our inheritance to come. That is to come. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have become distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What I want to point out from this passage, gold is perishable. So even though gold can be refined by fire, and even though you can potentially achieve pure gold with little to no impurities, you hit that 24 karat, even that, it's still perishable. Whereas our faith, Peter says, is not perishable, even though our faith might be tested by fire. With this in mind, when our Lord offered the Laodiceans to buy from him gold refined by fire, he is not speaking of physical gold that is perishable, though the purest level of gold is achieved. Our Lord is offering gold that is not from this earth and is imperishable. What is greater in value and purity and it is imperishable that surpasses that of perishable, pure and gold? I'm asking us, what's more precious that Peter said than the most precious gold that this present creation can offer? Peter told us, what's more precious than perishable gold? Faith. faith. Our faith. Here's a translation. It's like, Lord, why don't you just say it? When Jesus advised them to buy from him gold refined by fire, he was offering them saving faith. He said, buy from me gold refined by fire. He's saying, come to me for a true saving faith, which is more precious than even the perishable gold that you believe that you've amassed or acquired. Because when you have saving faith, that comes with true riches. It comes with true blessings. Because What comes with our saving faith is all of God's promises. So he wasn't actually selling gold. He was offering them saving faith. White garments. It's mentioned three times in the New Testament, and it's only in this book. The other two mentions of white garments was earlier in this chapter to Sardis. And in the next chapter, as we will see shortly after this, the 24 elders were clothed in white garments. In looking at all of the mentions of white in the book of Revelation, here's what 
is described as white in Revelation. Our Lord's hair was white, like white wool. There was that white stone that was one of the promises that our Lord made. Obviously white garments. There was white horses, and a white horse that even our Lord is riding on. There's white robes. There's a white cloud. There's white linen. And of course, there is the great white throne. When you look at these all, just across, what we can deduce is it speaks of purity and righteousness. In the promise to Sardis, he says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. The 24 elders, as I mentioned, were clothed in white garments. Who's going to clothe us with these white garments? The Lord. The Lord Jesus. When we come to be received by Him, He's going to clothe us with white garments. So to be clothed with white garments is to be clothed with His purity and righteousness. And this flows and is in contrast with concealing the shame of your nakedness. Remember, he's saying their true condition is that they're, among other things, naked. And you need to be clothed with white garments. When he says the shame of your nakedness, there are definite allusions to the fall. We all know this. Before the fall, Scripture tells us that and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. After the fall, Scripture tells us then the both The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. We know the story. After the fall, Adam and Eve, in futility, they tried to hide the shame of their nakedness for listening to the serpent, being deceived, and sinning against their God. Let me ask us a rhetorical question. When they realized that they were naked, and they tried to sew together fig leaves or whatever to cover their nakedness, did it cover the shame of their nakedness in God's eyes? Obviously not. It wasn't an adequate covering of the shame of their nakedness. Remember, they, before the fall, they felt no shame. After the fall, they felt the shame of their nakedness. Which is why after pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and Satan, Scripture tells us, and the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And as we see in the progressive revelation of his word, it was a picture of the ultimate covering or sacrifice of our Lord, which leads us to a truth. The only covering that can cover the shame of man's nakedness and sin is a covering that can only be provided by God himself, who also clothed Adam and Eve, even at the fall, but more specifically, by the sacrifice of Christ. Thus, not only was Christ offering them saving faith, but he was offering to cover their true state of shame and nakedness of their sin that remains. He's saying, the sin that you inherited from the fall of Adam and Eve is still the same with you. The sin and shame, the, the shame of your nakedness and sin hasn't been covered by the sacrifice of himself. And he continues to offer them more. And that is to buy from Jesus eye salve to anoint your eyes. And we've covered this in our introduction. Laodicea, it had a thriving economy. And part of that was their production of their eye salve. It was eye medicine in ancient times. In context, the eye salve may have contributed to their riches 
Hence, Jesus mentions of a different ISAV. And this is an ISAV that Jesus himself has to offer. And to get to the heart of what is this ISAV to anoint your eyes, Lord, what are you saying? I'd like for us to cross-reference John's gospel in John 9. We'll pick it up in verse 39. And we're all familiar with this context. There was a man healed of his blindness on a Sabbath by Jesus. That man was interrogated multiple times by the Jewish authorities concerning that miracle, even asked his parents. The Jewish authorities allege that Jesus is not from God because he did not keep the Sabbath. And so Jesus speaks of this concerning them. Verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Why I cross-reference this verse? Because it's insightful for what our Lord is communicating here. What was characteristic of the Jewish authorities is characteristic of the Laodiceans. They both believe that they can see. However, because they don't recognize their true spiritual state, they are wretched, pitiful, miserable, blind, naked, and their blindness remains. So when our Lord says, I salve to anoint your eyes, He was offering them saving faith, a white robe as their clothing, and I salve to give them eyes to see their true spiritual condition of who they are and who Christ is. Let me ask us a rhetorical question. The Jewish authorities who challenged Jesus alleged that he must not be from God because he healed on a Sabbath and didn't follow their traditions? Do they not believe that they're blind, they're guides for the blind and that they can see? And the Laodiceans who are part of this church believe that they can see? Yes, but the condition of them both remain. They don't see who they really are in light of truth revealed in Scripture, and they don't see even the very Lord that they're either contesting and even professing let's go at least one more verse 19 those whom i love i reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent okay when i get to this part of the verse initially i struggled those whom i love wait do you love them were they converted because what's clear and look we've been expositing the text at a very good pace. What's clear, just looking at the Scripture and comparing it with Scripture, is the Laodiceans weren't converted. Yet our Lord says, to those I love, whom I love, I reprove and discipline. But doesn't discipline apply to children of God? The household of God? The converted? Does this mean that their spiritual state, even though it was so dire, in spite of that, Jesus loves them and they are saved? Can someone be called wretched, pitiful, miserable, blind, and naked, and yet be saved? Thankfully, that struggle was short-lived. Love is not agape, which is the unconditional, determinative love, but it's phileo, which speaks more of a brotherly love, or even love by association. That's significant. Had agape been used, I'm I'm resigning from teaching. 
It would have rocked my theological world. Like, really? How can you clearly be unconverted, and yet he loves you unconditionally? But the fact that phileo was used, then it kept what we've been learning in balance. The Laodiceans by association. Okay. You know what that association is? The church. The Christian church is loved, phileo, by Christ. But that doesn't give them or the Christian church a free pass on their true spiritual condition. And I don't, I don't think I need to, I don't think this is going to be any news earth shattering here. You're not a Christian by going to a Christian church. You can identify as Christian and profess yourself Christian, but to be a child of God is something that is experienced through true saving faith and a new birth. So going to church doesn't save you. Being associated or a church member with a Christian church doesn't save you. That association doesn't save you. But because the name of Christ, there is this association or affiliation, he has some affection for that still. And because of that connection and association, Jesus is reproving and disciplining them. Reprove is elikjo. And it means to expose, convict, and by implication, there is proof of wrongdoing. So here in the West, in our judicial system, in our criminal justice system, we're innocent until proven guilty. And if we were to go on trial for an alleged crime and the prosecuting attorney is able to produce evidence of the alleged crime and charges, prove without a reasonable doubt, at least that's the standard that's being tried to uphold, that's being reproved exposed, and it will result in a conviction. At least that's the goal, the aim. Our Lord has proof, evidence of their deeds as he characterized as lukewarm. So when our Lord Jesus judges, it'll be beyond a reasonable doubt. It's an open and shut case in his eyes. Discipline is paideo, and it means to chasten, correct, or punish. And when you see this word discipline, The intention of discipline is to form proper habits of behavior. Jesus' intent behind this letter is to reveal and expose their true spiritual condition and cause them to be zealous and repent. Zealous is zeliul, and it means to have warm feelings for and to be jealous for their affection. And we know what repent means, and that is to change one's mind or direction. Jesus what his desire is, what his intention is with these harsh words. He's jealous. He wants to cause part of that discipline to be zealous and repent, to have affection steered back towards him in the right way. And this hard truth of their state is intended by Christ to lead them to repentance and turn their affections to him. I will stop here. Because we're going to introduce another thought here. And I will save these last, what, three verses for next week. But I'll kind of give us a little spoiler. A little bit. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Probably heard this before. Probably seen it in tracks. What was being communicated here? Because as we're learning, when he says, buy from me gold refined by fire, clothe yourself with white garments. Even buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes. We know it wasn't actual physical things. 
that he was offering them, but he was offering them saving faith, a covering that only he can provide to cover the true state of their shame and nakedness, and to offer them eye salve so that they can rightly see what our Lord saw in them and who he really is. You know, that really describes the conversion experience. You know, I, I guess if, if we want to say, well, how, how do I know I was redeemed? How do I know I was converted? Well, did you have that moment when he gave you eye salve to see your true state? To see your sinful condition and your sinful heart? And in light of that, we're learning about the, the holiness, the purity, the righteousness, the justice of our God. And in that awareness, we want to really cover our nakedness of our sin, but we know that there's nothing we can do to hide it. There's nothing I can make or conjure up that my God won't see, but only the sacrifice and covering of our Christ. And that's why we believed. We recognized our condition and then our need for a sacrifice and a covering. And that's why we embrace Christ. You've done that? I've done that? He's, you have eyes have. You have eyes to see. But if you don't really see or recognize your utter sinfulness, just like whether it's the Jewish authorities or whether it's here the lukewarm Laodiceans, they both think that they can see. And our Lord says, no, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So there are also groups among us that don't really see their utter sinfulness. And we talked a little bit earlier, Mike. I mean, I think there's been, we, we all can kind of relate to uh, or maybe observed there's some teachings, you know, from even churches that condone sin, that somehow you just confess it. And my counter to that is where, where was that taught by our Lord in any of these seven letters? Hey, you know, I died for that. It's okay. Just confess it. He says, you better stop or else I will come like a thief. What did our Apostle Paul says? Do not be deceived. Neither adulterers, fornicators, and all liars, there's other descriptions, will inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling this to the church, to Corinth. He's telling them, don't be deceived. And the call for us is don't be deceived as well, because sin is deceitful. You know what our sin would want to do? Hey, it's, um, it's all good. He knows your heart. Yeah, he knows my heart. That's why I'm desperately sick and wicked beyond cure. And I need an antidote for that. So I'm afraid there's going to be some in the church who use the grace of God as a license to sin or to cover their sin. And they don't have ISAF to see really who they are and who their living Christ is. And sadly for many of them, they're in for a rude awakening. Our salvation is really like the most important thing. Uh, you know, we, we talk, uh, you guys do Way of the Master? At Donna, are you familiar with Way of the Master? Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron. And one of their sayings is, there's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. That is so true. And I'll say this, for those who, who, who might, might want to minimize sin or a sinful habit or a sinful lifestyle and just minimize it, well, Peter says, if it is how hard for the household of God to be saved, what will become of the unrighteous? If there's just a cloak of covering for our sin and no... No call, no exhortation to repent of that and turn to our Christ. There's going to be a lot of people deceived thinking that they're inheriting the kingdom of God. It's sad. 
So it's really for us, it's like, okay, you know what? I can't worry about others. That's between them and God, Christ. I can only worry about myself. So let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for our salvation, work out our salvation. Let's continue to, with the grace of God and with his help and with his spirit, continue to recognize our condition, our tendencies, and repent of that and cut it off. We will never achieve perfection. I'm not not getting that. We know that there's nothing we can do to change that, but that's our pursuit. That's what our Lord has, he he wants us as pure as can be. And that's how we demonstrate our love to him is by resisting the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, all that this present world, this present system, and this present flesh can appeal to. It'll never be satisfied. And that's why he says, what would a man give if he were to gain the whole world? You can even say the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and indulge into your sinful flesh and impulses, but you forfeit your soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And I, and I think we're starting to learn in life where... You know, when God gives us like a will and life is really a test, it's like, okay, I'm going to give you an X amount of time to live. What are going to be your pursuits? What are going to be your passions? Where, where, where is your love and affection for me in the grand scheme of things? Our life, our choices, our pursuits, our passions, everything, it's going to show where God fits in all that. So really life is, it's a test to demonstrate, you know what, Lord, whatever this world has to offer, it, it will not compare to your loving hands. And then when we're done at the end of life, it's like, how'd I do? How did I demonstrate my love to you in the amount of time you've given me to live on earth? How did I love you and love others in this process? And what did I do to myself to learn my tendencies and behaviors and the sin that's in me? And instead of pouring and giving life to it, I chose to continue to repent of that and pursue you. All that will come into play when we get judged at the end for our deeds. Now, for those of us in Christ, we're not going to be judged for our sin because Christ died for them. But we will be judged for our deeds and behavior. And each man and each woman will receive a reward consistent with what we've done. Only our God can, can judge. Okay, that was off the script there. But we will pick it up in verse 20. And we will finish this letter... Amen. Well, certainly a very powerful and cutting warning from the Lord Jesus Christ to this ancient church in Laodicea. But those words hold true, and if we're really honest with ourselves, they resonate just as loudly today as they did in the first century. We do hope you enjoyed, were blessed, and even challenged by this message today. If so, please consider subscribing to us as a podcast at Truth Matters Church, or join us online or in person for our Friday night Bible studies. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. That's truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.